Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence by the Ohio Board of Regents in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, a brand-new facility completed in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in the new building. Read more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today, we're talking to Christopher Anderson, the executive director of Male Survivor, an organization dedicated to assisting and advocating for men who have suffered from sexual abuse. We'll be talking about the lifelong ramifications of male-child sexual abuse. Chris, let's talk about the whole uh, male sexual abuse uh, concept here or or some of the facts about it. Uh, The numbers are pretty staggering. Why don't you reel off some of the numbers that you use every day in describing this? Sure. You know, one of the things that's really important to help people understand is uh, there's a lot more men who struggle with being sexually victimized uh, than people are aware of. Uh, According to the latest data from the Centers for Disease Control, uh, and this comes from a study called the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, they estimate when we look at all forms of sexual victimization, uh, not just rape, but all forms of sexual violence, as many as one in four Uh, men, 25% of men across the lifespan have already or will experience some form of sexual victimization in their lifetime. That's higher than than the figures before. We we used to hear one in six. Is is this a new finding? Well, it's a little bit of an expansion. The one in six stat uh, actually refers specifically to child sexual victimization. Um, and the reason why male survivor and, and I like to use the one in four statistic is because it's very important to recognize that, you know, the sexual abuse of men and boys is something that happens, you know, at all ages. So it's very important for us to look at and highlight, obviously, the one in six boys who will be sexually abused before the age of 18. But I think it's important also to acknowledge that there are very, very many adult men who experience sexual violence in many different contexts. And, and they're sort of um, an unseen, unheard of group. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and we, when you try to break down that, you know, sort of who those men are, we see sexual violence happen uh, to adult men in incarcerated populations. We're starting to hear a lot about military sexual trauma, uh, sexual abuse that happens to men in the ranks. Um, we're also starting to hear a little bit as the awareness around campus sexual violence is becoming more and more publicized. Uh, slowly, there are starting to be more uh, men who are college students who are coming forward and sharing their stories. Most people believe that it's 
all male-on-male abuse. That's inaccurate. Correct. Uh, One of the things that is uh, oftentimes misunderstood is that not only can anyone be a potential victim, but anyone can uh, be a perpetrator. And maybe let me rephrase that. We shouldn't make presumptions that perpetrators are always male. There are many contexts uh, in which females do do, uh, sexual violence, uh, acts of sexual violence uh, on male victims. Uh, And we're starting to understand that uh, just because uh, a woman, you know, uh, chooses to have sex with a man uh, or a man submits to have sexual contact uh, with a female, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, you know, it wasn't uh, an abusive uh, or a victimization uh, experience. Let's talk about Male Survivor, uh, a unique organization. Uh, it's all one word, male mm-hmm. and survivor, and the, the M and the S are both uh, capitalized. Uh, tell us about the organization and why it exists. Sure. So Male Survivor uh, was founded about 20 years ago by uh, a group of social workers and therapists and mental health professionals and and other uh, advocates uh, in response to what many of them were seeing as an uptick, an increase in the number of men who were beginning to disclose to them uh, in their practices. And they were looking around the landscape and realizing that there really was virtually no resources, no information for male victims of sexual violence. And more importantly, not only were there no resources, but there was a lot of there were a lot of challenges and a lot of, I think, difficulties in finding support if you were a man who did come forward. Very few professionals knew how to even acknowledge or address um, the experience of male sexual abuse. Uh, And there wasn't a lot of understanding uh, and therefore not necessarily a lot of compassion within the professional community uh, for male survivors. Um, Over the course of its history, uh, male survivor has tried to address, you know, these issues by first really bring together professionals to educate one another and learn about, you know, just open up a space for conversations and even acknowledge that males can be sexually abused, which even 20 years ago was uh, a topic that was very difficult to get people to really talk about openly. Or to acknowledge Uh, that it existed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And you know, part of what the founders of the organization saw, in addition, uh, was there was a need not just to educate professionals, but to begin to try and bring survivors together um, and create safe places for survivors to share their stories with one another. Uh, And and a lot of the original founders, uh, including folks like Richard Gartner and Jim Struve and uh, Howard Fradkin, uh, a number of other really wonderful uh, therapists, uh, and clinicians really started to understand that there's a there's a power that there's a powerful healing dynamic that happens when you can create a safe space where survivors not only can be empowered to share their stories but to do so in an environment where it, it, they feel a sense of safety. Um, so 
uh, in 2001, a group of the founders developed a program uh, and started developing retreats for men to come together and begin sharing their stories. And that turned into what's called now the Weekends of Recovery Program. Uh, and since 2001, the organization has hosted and run over 60 weekend retreats uh, in locations all over North America. And we've had over 1,300 uh, male survivors uh, attend at least one of our weekends of recovery. Um, and I can tell you as a survivor myself and as somebody who attended a weekend, and that's you know, part of how I came to become connected to the organization, you know, the, the experience of being able to be with other men who were survivors um, in a safe and supportive environment was something that was uh, really a transformative experience for me. Now, male survivor in your organization seems to me to meet an ongoing need, Chris, where we sometimes only think of male sexual abuse in the context of uh, the big criminal cases like the Sandusky case or when we see a movie uh, spotlight or mm -hmm. when there's a focus on the church and, and some of the abuse going on there. Uh, it seems like what I'm hearing you say is is you're, uh, yes, you're interested in those things, but you're trying to have an ongoing service organization to both survivors as well as an educational uh, organization to educate people about an ongoing problem. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think as somebody who has come into the work of being an advocate uh, for other survivors and now uh, a leader in sort of the nonprofit sphere uh, to, to the extent that, that, that I am, I've learned that I think there are three main areas uh, of focus when you're addressing uh, an issue like sexual violence or, or some other critically important, um, you know, social cause uh, like uh, like this. Uh, and I think the three main areas of effort break down to, you know, you can fight for justice, uh, you can work to prevent the harm itself, and you can work to create you know, resources for healing uh, and empower and encourage those who've been impacted by the harm, be it sexual abuse or uh, socioeconomic, uh, you know, issues or discrimination. You know, there are, there's a significant need, I think, for organizations that provide healing support uh, in an ongoing way. And I think that's one of the things that really distinguishes Male Survivor is you know, we do try to raise awareness and certainly we do try to address the justice and prevention pieces in the ways that we can. Um, but I think really the, the core of what Male Survivor does is we're there on an ongoing basis to educate, you know, the public, to educate survivors about what it means to heal and how it is, you know, we try to provide resources that help survivors heal um, and try to be a place where survivors, you know, for, for, really the course of their lives, if need be, you know, can come to and find support and find information and find ways to connect with other survivors and professionals who can help them in, you know, what truly is, I think, very, very often the very difficult work of healing from trauma and abuse. I want to talk and shift gears a little bit uh, and talk about your personal journey in, in mm -hmm. many respects. 
Uh, you've become executive director of this uh, major organization. You travel the country. You speak. You uh, testify. You're an advocate. Uh, you're part of the policy-making group that directs uh, this this organization. But you didn't always do this. I mean, you didn't no. come from the nonprofit sector or from the political sector. Uh, you were a professional stagehand in, in New York City for a long period of time, correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, well, it, and then all of a sudden the shift. I mean, it, it, being behind the scenes in professional uh, theater seems to, uh, a great leap to being the advocate out front uh, for a major organization. Um. It's definitely not a role that I scripted for myself, uh, shall we say. <laughs> okay. Um, so, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm a survivor myself. I was sexually abused when I was a child uh, by a neighbor. And I also grew up in a home where there was a lot of dysfunction and chaos. And that, you know, very deeply impacted me in a lot of ways. Uh and it wasn't until I was in my 30s uh, that I really started to put all of the pieces together. But before I got to that point, you know, I was, you know, I was trying to find my way in the world. Right. And uh, as it just so happened, uh, I managed to get into, you know, the theater work uh, and became a stagehand and eventually worked my way up to being a stagehand in New York City and working on Broadway and doing all kinds of interesting and rewarding and very challenging uh, work behind the scenes. I decided at one point that I wanted to do something different uh, and uh, was actually had made a decision to leave the theater world for a while, and I tried to go to law school. Uh, and no, I don't know that that was a good idea. <laughs> well, I <laughs> not just I, for you, but uh, yeah. law school. It was three horrible years for me. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Whenever I tell people the story, and I say, "Yeah, I, I spent a semester at law school and and left because I realized I really didn't want to be a lawyer," you'd be amazed how many lawyers look at me and go, "I'm so jealous. Uh, you got out." <laughs> right. Um, but interestingly, you know, I so. As I was part of the inspiration to, and the decision to go to law school was because um, towards the end of my stagehand career was when I had started to really try putting the pieces together about my own, how the sexual abuse I had experienced impacted me. And that was also the time where I found Male Survivors website and I joined the online discussion forums there and really began to start to see and put together the pieces of not only what was done to me, but understand how what was done to me when I was so young, you know, was, was a burden and a leg, you know, and something I was still carrying with me. Um, and I started to find resources and really began focusing on my healing. And as I really went down that road, I felt very passionate about wanting to try and give back in some way. And uh, one of the first ways I was able to do that uh, was in 2007 at a conference that Male Survivor put on. I was given the opportunity to do a presentation, uh, a workshop uh, directed to professionals called 10 Things Survivor or 10 Things uh, Therapists Should Know About Male Survivors of Sexual Abuse. Because I felt thinking about my own experiences as right. a survivor, um, 
that there were a lot of times that that therapists didn't really understand from our perspective what it was that we needed. Um, And I wasn't trying to be hostile or aggressive. I just felt like, you know, the survivor's voice is one that's oftentimes left out. And they gave me that platform and it sort of started my my career, I guess, as an advocate. And over time, I I just kept finding ways to, to speak up and give back. And when I left law school, um, I was serving on the board of Male Survivor at the time, uh, and they looked at me and they said, well, you know, we've never had an executive director before, and you've got this block of free time at the moment. Would you be, <laughs> would you consider it? Uh, and I was very nervous about taking on the role at first, but I'm, in the end, I'm really glad that I did because I, uh, I've, I feel that it's given me an opportunity to have more of an impact as a survivor uh, and, and do more of that work of trying to educate other, you know, communities and incorporate the survivor's voice into a lot of the work. Uh, but it's also given me an opportunity to give back to this organization, which, you know, in many ways, I think, gave me back my own life. Chris, answer a question that we hear often any time the the idea of male sexual abuse comes up, and especially childhood male sexual abuse comes up, uh, and it comes up in people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, certainly middle age sometimes, it, it, everybody says, oh, this happened 40, 50 years ago. Why can't you get over it? What what What's the big deal? Yeah, maybe it bothered you as a kid, but but you're a, a 50-year-old man or a 40-year-old man. And, and, you know, why are you, you know, complaining and moaning about it now? How, how do you respond to that? Well, there's a lot of different ways to respond to it. There's the impolitic ways that oftentimes come to mind. Yeah. Um, but I think... You know, a lot of those responses reflect a lack of awareness about how trauma actually impacts our minds and how, as human beings, any form of abuse or trauma has the potential to impact us and, and, care, and we can carry the, the psychological and the neurological impact of abuse and trauma for a very, very long time. You so know, this, we, this is the first time you're using the term trauma. You're, you're yes. characterizing... Uh, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, all kinds of different kinds of abuse as, as even if it's ongoing as a traumatic experience. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I mean that in the... A clinical in, way. In a clinical way. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, going back to the question you just asked, Tom, you know, that's one of the reasons why very often I think people minimize the sexual abuse of males so often that they just dismiss out of hand the very idea that a man can be traumatized by a sexual experience, um, regardless of when it happens. And one of the things that's very important to help people understand, and not just, you know, the public, but I think male survivors themselves, uh, we need to do a better job of helping people recognize that if you have experienced any form of sexual victimization in, at any point in time in your life, you know, it's very possible that you may carry the legacy of trauma 
you know, with within you. And, you know, I know a lot of men who, even though they didn't put the pieces together until 20, 30, 40 years later, for most of their lives struggled with many of the classic sort of PTSD type you know, symptoms of anxiety, depression, maybe substance abuse, all of these things. They had all these coping behaviors that they've engaged in, but because we don't have the dialogue uh, and we don't have a space that allows men to acknowledge their trauma, uh, especially if that trauma is related to sexual abuse, you know, they're not able to put the pieces together. Um, so that's why I think we have so many men who 20, 30, 40 years later, you know, finally are able to put some of these pieces together for themselves, but then they're surrounded by a community that doesn't understand um, the context. Uh, and all they see is a guy who's now saying, you know, so many years after the fact that something happened to him and, and they don't understand why, you know, A leads to B. And... and some of the reading of trauma, and I've not done near as much as you have, uh, says that it actually rewires the brain. Yes. Uh, and so uh, victims who turn survivors actually have a different brain system working for them than a person who has not experienced that trauma. Is, is that a correct characterization? I would I would slightly reframe it, okay. um, because I, I think it's important to help people understand that you know just because you've been you know sexually abused doesn't mean that you're brain damaged. Um, no. And we, yeah, and we have to be you know cautious. I think sometimes because there are ways in which um, the science of trauma. You know, and let me be clear, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm sure. not a you know I I am a lay person but a, somebody who spent a lot of time speaking with trauma therapists and reading up on a lot of these issues and, and coming at it from the perspective of a survivor who's looking for answers for myself. Right. Um, the, what we do know very clearly is that the experience of trauma can have very significant impacts on certain, uh, certain parts of our brains. Um, and when we look at populations, whether it's sexual abuse survivors or uh, military personnel who have combat injuries or traumatic brain injuries, we see a lot of similarities in the many of the psychological challenges that some that some of us struggle with. And we can link those back to certain parts of the brain that sometimes become overactive or, or oversensitized. One of the reasons why it's so important to understand, to, to see all of this and be able to put these pieces together is we also now understand that the brain can change itself over time. And there are many, many different, you know, uh, studies uh, and examples of uh, people who struggle with many different psychological issues, not just trauma, who with the right course of therapy and the right kind of effort over time are able to you know, dramatically recover and find healing uh, and improve the quality of their lives. Um, so, you know, it, it's exciting and important to raise these issues because a lot of times people tend to think when it comes to emotional, you know, baggage or psychological issues, you know, there used, it used to be, you know, even 20 years ago, there was this idea that the brain is what the brain is. And once you get past, you know, childhood, you right. can't change anything. And what we actually understand now is, no, 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 the brain is malleable over the course of our lives. And if you've experienced trauma, for instance, 
there's every reason to believe that no matter how long you maybe have struggled with trauma and depression and anxiety or all these things, with the right kinds of support, you absolutely can heal. Um, and that's a message that hasn't gotten out nearly enough. Uh, and that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about communicating to people as a, you know, as an advocate and as a survivor. You know, it's we need to know that there's hope for us. Well, the trauma that you talked about, Chris, in, and if you look at that, it's not just the trauma. It's lay, layering on of other things, shame and, and guilt, and, and then uh, sometimes adverse coping mechanisms that lead to addictions of all kinds, uh, inability to have uh, meaningful relationships. I mean, they're all a huge list yep. of, of things that go on. And it's not just one thing. It's all of these things layered on top of each other, which if you maybe you can address one thing, then another thing pops up. And it, 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 I, I sometimes euphemistically say it's, it's a gift that keeps on giving because there are just, it uh, seems uh, there's no end to uh, uh, the problems that are caused by this, uh, not just problems for the, the victim or survivor, but problems for people that uh, the victim and survivor interacts with, family members, spouses, mm -hmm. partners, uh, children. Uh, the, the problem seems to be very, very wide-ranging. Sometimes I, I think it's like tossing a pebble in a pond and you get all of the ripples that go out. It's not just the pebble, it's, it's the ripples that go from that point to the shore. Absolutely. I, I couldn't say it better myself. Um, and I, you know, I, I like to draw an analogy sometimes to cancer, you know, whereas a tumor cell can metastasize, you know, across various systems in the body. The impact of abuse, I think, metastasizes across our relationships and, and doesn't just impact the life of the survivor, but as you just said, oftentimes impacts not just those who are closest to them, but even sometimes just, you know, random people. I mean, let's say you've got somebody who's having a bad day and they're, you know, they yell at the guy at McDonald's who got his order <laughs> wrong, yeah. you know, yeah, <laughs> which I've... Not, I'm ashamed, I'm, I'm slightly ashamed to say that's something that, you know, my anger would leak out at times in ways like that in the past. You know, it, 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 that's one of the reasons male survivor also I think is unique is we don't just address the needs of survivors. We try to find ways to, to bring resources to partners of survivors as well. You know, and I mentioned our discussion forums before. We have a discussion forum specifically for friends and family members so that they can connect with one another and get support. And every couple of years, we hold one of our weekends uh, where we invite survivors to bring their partners with them. Um, and I'll tell you a, a quick little story. Sure. My, my wife and I actually started our honeymoon, believe it or not, <laughs> at, a, at a male survivor weekend of recovery, um, which might sound a little, you know, like, oh, my God, we've drunk the Kool-Aid. Um, but honestly, I can say and, you know, my a wife would tell you this start. as well. Yeah. Some of the things that she learned and she was able to hear from other people, I think, helped her better understand me. And. You know, when we talk about healing survivors and we talk about trying to create more responsive environments that are trauma informed, you know, sometimes 
you know, focusing on other, you know, the others who are closest to survivors and providing them with support as well can be just as important. Absolutely, because it, as as I said, it's it's not just the the person who suffered the the abuse directly, but anybody that person comes in contact with. Uh, sort of, uh, I want to wrap up here in a few minutes, but there are a couple of things I, I do want to talk about, and that sure. is, it seems like in the area of child sexual abuse, especially on the male side, we are fixated on the judicial system somehow solving all of our problems. Right. If, if you could only bring criminal action against the, the abuser or if you could bring a civil action against the uh, abuser. How important is that? And, and is that the panacea that, that some people think it is? Um, I think it's very important, uh, and it's definitely not a panacea. I'll tell you, in my case, in many, many survivors' cases, there's simply no way that there could ever be uh, a criminal charge brought because there's so much time that's elapsed uh, and there's the evidence required to bring a criminal case doesn't exist any longer. But there's also many people who simply just don't have the, the wherewithal or the the fortitude to be able to go through the challenges of uh, a legal case. Um, and, you know, I mean, I know, Tom, your background, you appreciate sure. this more than many. Um, that said, I think probably the easiest way to answer this is to sort of go back again to trauma. And I, I, I look at everything through a trauma lens. Trauma for me is the experience of powerlessness. And anything that we can do to empower survivors or those who've been impacted by trauma to take action for themselves, I think is very important. And one of the ways that we can do that is by ensuring that survivors have open access to the legal system to hold perpetrators and the institutions that, that shield oftentimes uh, perpetrators uh, accountable. That said, I feel very strongly that there's a big difference. You know, I remember I said earlier, there's three kind of areas yeah. of, of advocacy, the prevention, the justice, and the healing. Um, I see justice and healing as separate efforts. And very oftentimes people think I can't do, you know, the healing work until I do the justice work. And I try to share with survivors and, and folks in law enforcement too, you know, there's no reason that one has to come before the other. We just have to recognize that they're separate, you know, that they're separate efforts. And if we can find ways to allow healing to occur and allow, ju in, and allow justice to be pursued in ways that don't make healing more difficult for survivors, that don't make survivors feel re-victimized and re-traumatized, that that's, that's a really important shift, you know, and there's yeah. many ways to do that. Um, it doesn't just include changing the laws. A lot of times it includes simply just talking to law enforcement personnel and educating them about trauma and helping them understand there are ways in which they can interact with survivors and their loved ones that are more trauma-informed and, and don't make somebody who's been the victim of a crime feel negated and powerless and disbelieved. Some victims are victimized by family members, and that uh, makes uh, prosecution even more difficult, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, there's a there's there's a belief oftentimes that the the right way to handle any you know any of these issues is to put you know throw the bad the bad guy in jail, um, and 
I can understand why that's a very, you know, tempting and satisfying perspective to hold on to, but that doesn't really speak to the reality of many, you know, many circumstances. Um, it's not always going to be uh, either the necessarily the best solution, uh, given the circumstances, or a solution that could even be achieved, given, you know, if, if you have a child who's being abused by their parent, um, that's a very, very difficult, complex situation that needs to be addressed at, ma- at many, many different levels. It can't, it's never as simple as just throwing a bad person in jail. We'll be back after this short message. This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Ohio University's online applied communication program offered by the renowned Scripps College of Communication is designed for associate degree graduates who want to further their education and advance their careers. It's been ranked first in the best online bachelor's in communication and public relations Students Before Profits Award 2015-2016 by nonprofit colleges online. In the program, you will study across multiple communication disciplines to gain understanding of how they work together and graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Communication in Applied Communication from the Scripps College. One of the premier colleges of its kind in the nation, the Scripps College of Communication, has been designated as a center of excellence by the state of Ohio. It is considered one of Ohio University's most distinguished programs by the Guide to 101 of Best Values in American Colleges and Universities. Read more about it at ohio.edu slash applied communication. One of the other things that I think is really important for people to know, you know, and this goes back to, I think, my sort of history and connection to the organization, you know, as executive director, I'm very aware that, you know, part of my job is to be sort of a face for male survivor and a, a voice for the organization. But, you know, a lot of times people sometimes think that this is my organization. And I want to be clear that, you know, I... I'm a spokesperson and a representative for the organization, and I, the only reason I'm able to do what I do is you know, because of the tremendous work and sacrifices that so many other people made to build up Male Survivor before me. You know, and I mentioned some of them before, some of the founders like Richard Gartner and Howard Fracken and Jim Struve, and many of them are still involved with some of our programs like the Weekends of Recovery. So you know, it's important for me just to say and acknowledge that you know, I'm a, uh, I'm I'm here doing the work that I do, um, in not to sort of minimize or you know or downplay the role that I have as a spokesperson or as the executive director and as an advocate, um, but a lot of what I do has only been made possible by the things that I've learned um, in my healing journey from the resources that other people put in place before me. And a lot of those things are still very much at the heart of who and what Male Survivor is. You know, and when you review our website and you see our materials, there's, there's information there that we've gathered for, you know, for over 20 years. Um, and we're always adding to. So I, I want to make sure that people know that you know, Male Survivor is 
a collaborative effort. And it's, it's about trying to build a bridge between the survivors and professionals from across many different, uh, you know, communities. And I think when we're doing our, our work the right way, it's, it's empowering and inspiring both survivors themselves, but also oftentimes the professionals who work with us in any capacity. Because I think, you know, there is that synergy that happens when, you know, you come together in a productive, you know, equal way. Um, and that's, that's something I just wanted to make sure I, I also included, because sometimes I get a little, um, I, I, I get a little sensitive <laughs> about maybe maybe too sensitive by half on this sometimes you know i just want to make sure people know that you know i'm i'm advocating and able to do what i do because of the work that so many others have done before me well the three people that you mentioned are uh top ranking uh psychologists and and therapists who have spent their lifetime specializing in these areas uh but in addition to that, Chris, uh, one thing that, that I've noticed about your work and about the Male Survivor Organization is that uh, the people in power in that organization reach out to members and survivors to try to bring in their particular talents uh, to enhance the organization. So it really is a collaborative Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I, I hope that we are able to continue building on that collaboration because I really feel like that's, that's, that's the way you create a resource that, you know, serves the best interests of the population at large. Um, and that's really, you know, I've, I feel is the right way to do any kind of advocacy work. Chris, you deal with this topic uh, each and every day at, at multiple levels. But let me ask, what just aggravates you? What just angers you at this point that either in an area of misunderstanding or misinterpretation or people just don't get it or I, I wish that they'd understand better? I mean, you must have triggers that just push you to the edge. Um. Well, without getting into the the political issues of being <laughs> okay. in the nonprofit world, because <laughs> that, right. that could beyond that—that's that. a, that's a conversation for 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 off the air. Right. Um, I will say the one thing that I find is a real sort of flash. I see red whenever it happens. Is whenever I hear uh, the victimization of males by female perpetrators turned into a joke and. I've seen it done countless times. Uh, the most, some of the, one of the most egregious and recent examples, uh, Saturday Night Live has recently done something called the teacher trial skit. Bill Maher repeatedly makes jokes about, uh, you know, adolescent boys being sexually abused by um, female teachers and says that, they, you know, they're lucky bastards. Uh, they're not really victims. And oftentimes when we see these cases reported in the media, the media uses the term relationship when it's a male victim and a female perpetrator, when if you reverse the genders, I guarantee you that you would never see the term relationship. Used. It'd be sexual assault or rape or, or right. something else. So whenever I see the sexual victimization uh, or sexual abuse of males um, minimized, denigrated, and literally mocked, that's something that just... You know, it, it's hard for me to 
to hold back. I've I've learned to, over time, not fire off um, uh, as much as I had before. Uh, but that's that's probably one of the biggest red flags for me. So as we wrap up, uh, your website is malesurvivor, all one word, dot O-R-G, correct? Yep, that's correct. And how do people reach out to you? Is there an email address at malesurvivor? Yep. There's a there's an email uh, box uh, on the website. Uh, you can also always email me at canderson at malesurvivor.org. Um, and you can also connect to us on our social media platforms. We've got a Facebook page, and uh, our Twitter handle is at MailSurvivorORG. And if somebody out there is, is wanting to make the transition from victim to survivor, know that they need help. Uh, do you have directories, or is there a way that uh, they could find somebody in their geographical area? Absolutely. So the the two best things that I can suggest, you know, take a look at the discussion forums on our website. Um, you can find, you know, other survivors from all over the world to connect with in a friendly community where you can, you know, share your stories or even just read and, and see other people's stories. And sometimes that can be a big help. And then we also have resource directories. We have a therapist directory where we have over 400 professionals from around North America who've told us that they work with male survivors. Um, and you can find uh, support, professional support uh, and also sometimes support groups uh, in your areas as well. Now, you're working on two podcasts as well, correct? Yes. Uh, I'm working uh, – this is actually – let me also – let me – sorry, I know – fortunately, we're not live, and I just totally like <laughs> blah, 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 blah. That's all right. <laughs> so let me back up because um, I've got something in my head I want to make sure I say sure. as well. So um, let me answer your question, and then I want to talk about two new resources. I want to talk about the media guide and the HHS okay. team. Um, but I also there's one other point I'll make after all of this because right. there's one other thing in my head. Go. Okay. So, uh, yes, I am working on uh, a couple of podcast projects. Uh, one is called, uh, which is called the Weekend Pro uh, Podcast, W-E-A-K-E-N-D. And that's going to be a series of conversations with other men who've experienced trauma. And the, the hope in that project is to create a platform and a space where I can uh, – discuss with other men the kinds of things that men never talk about uh, in a safe and hopefully uh, entertaining and captivating way. Uh, I'm also uh, working on a new project with a friend of mine, Dave Pizarra. We're calling it The Mailbox, M-A-L-E-B-O-X. And uh, Dave is an attorney who's done a lot of work with uh, fathers uh, who've uh, had custody issues and uh, the idea behind the mailbox is to create a space where we can talk about modern issues that men face in a way that's not reductive, that's not simplistic, uh, but actually really honors the challenges and the complexities of being a man and trying to make a space where men's trauma uh, can be discussed openly and candidly uh, without a lot of the preconceived notions uh, that you see in some of the media. Well, good luck with those. You wanted to go back to the website, I think. 
Yeah, so there's two new resources also that I wanted to highlight. The first, which is a project I'm really excited about, we just started and launched a, pro uh, a project with the Nova Southeastern University's TRIP program. TRIP stands for Trauma Resolution and Integration Program. And the what we have now on the website is a resource called the Hope, Healing, and Support Team. And what that is, is it's an email resource where anybody who has any questions about trauma or healing uh, and sexual abuse of men can email the, tr the HHS team. And what we have is a group of students who are getting their clinical doctorates in psychology. Um, who are preparing to go on and become therapists themselves, uh, but who have had specific training in trauma and in male sexual victimization issues. So we have a team of students who are ready to answer your questions about trauma and male sexual victimization there, and that's a free resource. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is a project that you and I are actually working on together, Abs Tom. Absolutely which is a guide for media to uh, create a resource f around best practices uh, to educate the media and help people understand some of the underlying dynamics and help journalists uh, do a better job you know, in reporting on male sexual abuse and sexual abuse in general and how to better understand some of the dynamics here and how to you know, more respectfully and... and uh, I think, from a trauma-informed perspective, conduct interviews with survivors. And it'll be a quick uh, way for journalists to, to use it as a resource and, and go to it and see perhaps the right verbiage uh, to use, the right interview techniques to use. So uh, I think it'll be very, very useful to, to media out there who and media members who are not used to doing this, and occasionally they, they get an assignment, and, and that's traumatic to them as well. Absolutely. You know, it's very difficult to write about and to, you know, interview oftentimes survivors who many, you know, may have their pain very close to the surface. And I think having some of these, you know, best practices at hand uh, will help empower journalists to feel like they can do a better job, uh, and I hope, hopefully also create better circumstances for survivors as well. Chris, thank you, and hope maybe we can do this again in the future. I'd love to, Tom. Thank you so much for, for your support and your help, and for best of luck with this podcast. I think it's a really, really great program, and I'm honored to be a part of it. We've been talking with Christopher Anderson, executive director of an organization called Male Survivor, about the ramifications of sexual abuse in males. We want to thank you for listening to Spectrum. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Next on Spectrum, we'll be talking with Professor Marilyn Greenwald about her latest book about journalistic pioneer and broadcaster Pauline Frederick. For more information about Spectrum, go to wwb.org.